Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. You're right. Now, the U.S. is trying very hard to get TSMC to move to the U.S. and they're throwing money out. They, you know, TSMC is going to Arizona. The CHIPS Act has passed. That'll throw a lot of money around, but that won't be enough. In the current announced plans, just purely what's been announced so far, you know, I read the numbers and I estimate that TSMC's uh, global capacity, only less than 5% would be in the U.S. based on the current announced plans. Now, I expect those plans to expand and broaden. They seem to have enough land and possibility of up to four factories instead of two. They could even go to six, who knows? But even if they were to expand to the, you know, the maximum of what might be possible in Arizona, I think still we'd get maybe 7% global capacity at the US, maybe up to 10%. And it won't be the leading edge. The leading edge will still be in Taiwan. And that's not just for kind of protection reasons. I think a lot of people think that all oh, the Taiwanese don't want to have the best in America because they're trying to hold on to the themselves, which is kind of true, but it's also an issue of practicality. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premium podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the Taiwan streets remain to be the key flashpoint in East Asia. What does it mean for Taiwanese business giants from TSMC to Foxconn to be caught in the rising conflict between the United States and China? With me today, an old friend, Tim Kopon, columnist at Bloomberg with his succinct and thoughtful analysis of all these key issues. And our last conversation dated back four years during the glimpses of the tech cold war in 2019. And this conversation will definitely be televised still on audio. Tim, welcome to the show. It's nice to be back, Bernard. Good to talk to you. Since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, I got through the pandemic like everybody else. Taiwan, I was seeing Taiwan through pretty much all of it. And Taiwan, you know, got through quite well compared to most places. We never had a lockdown in Taiwan. One kind of little factoid I tell people is that the two Apple stores in Taipei, the only two Apple stores globally that never got shut down or had their hours affected. I think that's true. I, as far as I know, that's true. But yeah, so we got through that. But, you know, in terms of my professional life, clearly the supply chain, which is my jam, it's what I've been covering for uh, two decades, has got a lot more interest. You're right. We talked kind of about the tech cold war. President Donald Trump was still in power and the animosity and tension was rising between the US and China and the supply chain was getting a focus. Then the pandemic came along and we realized, wow, the world really is addicted to Taiwan-based supply chain, and there's been a lot to talk about since then. Mm. Of course, we go straight to the main subject of the day is to talk about the Taiwan tech giants and also the current fragile semiconductors supply chain. Last time was we talked about the tech cold war, and a lot has happened over the past four years with 
the new Biden presidency. And nowadays, you know, the US military has nothing better to do but just shooting balloons. Maybe the first thing I probably want to ask is, where are the Taiwanese tech giants? For example, TSMC, Foxconn, and some of the others like Pegatron, UMC as well. Well, I think all of this tension is actually good for those companies because as we decouple and as the supply chain fractures more and more away from a China centralized model, and that's mostly for assembly and component assembly, we still have, of course, you know, the start of the supply chain really does start in Taiwan, in Qinzhou, Tainan and Taichung with TSMC and UMC. But as the supply chain does fracture, as TSMC moves to both the US, but also Japan and quite possibly Europe in Germany and Dresden seems to be the current thinking. What we'll see is the giants, I think, will be more advantaged because they have the size, they have the scale, they have the know-how to manage their supply chains and their manufacturing operations and their logistics in multiple places. It's going to be more and more difficult for tier two, tier three players to challenge the strength of companies like Boxcon and Pegatron and TSMC and UMC. So I think it actually plays into their hand. I think it's helpful for them more than a risk for them. But Foxconn is the largest contract manufacturing for Apple in the world. I think I last checked, it's still the same. And they're still assembling the iPhones in China. Reading on some of the different publications, it's still about like 90%. Recently, there were some protests that's related in the China factories. What is the risk for both Foxconn and Apple if this supply chain starts to decouple? Well, the biggest problem really is that it's a codependent relationship, not healthy for either Apple or Foxconn. Foxconn is addicted to Apple. They get 50% of their revenue from Apple. Apple is addicted to Foxconn and really need Foxconn to be producing at a high level. And what you referenced in Zhengzhou really honed that point that there was a worker uprising. There was renewed attention globally on the conditions in factories and work did stop or at least, you know, slowed down a lot. And that hurt Foxconn. They said so that hurt Apple. Tim Cook said so himself in an earnings call. That is, that is really an unhealthy relationship. I've been arguing that for years. What's interesting though, is they both know it. Foxconn is trying to move away from smartphone manufacturing and the EVs are their new push. And they're very, very early days in EVs. They may fail. They may be successful. I don't know, but they're trying. And I think that's a good thing. They're looking for somewhere new. And if you look at what an EV really is, it's a computer on wheels, right? The Dell or an HP desktop computer with big set of wheels. That's really all they are. And there's a lot of components that goes into an EV. Far more components go into an EV than go into an iPhone or even a desktop computer. That's a lot of opportunity at Foxconn. Because Foxconn's real money is not from assembly. The real money Foxconn makes in its 30, 40 years of existence had been from the components that go inside. So there's a huge opportunity for them. Apple, meanwhile, is addicted to Foxconn. It's addicted to China. And Apple has been very slow to get out of China. You know, I've been banging that drum for years. A lot of other people have been banging that drum for years saying, you know, you're too addicted. And Apple knows it, but they seem pretty stuck. They have done deals to basically commit to buying a certain amount of stuff from China. And I think that's probably a deal so they can stay in China and sell stuff in China. 
So what we're seeing, and this is my prediction that I haven't really talked about, so it's exclusive to you, but it is, here's what's going to happen in the next five years. Foxconn, Pegatron, and Wistron and the Taiwanese will probably get less and less of the assembly orders from Apple. And more and more of it will go to Chinese competitors, but they'll be doing that work outside of China, such as Vietnam. So we're going to see things like AirPod Max and the various other accessories being made in India, but also Vietnam and other places, but not made by the Taiwanese. And that'll be the way for Apple to still give China orders that they said they would give them, but not necessarily within the borders of China itself. That's mm. what's going to happen over the next five years. That's how Apple is going to reduce its addiction to Foxconn and the Taiwanese while keeping the Chinese happy. So what about servicing the rest of the world through Foxconn then? If Foxconn were to build a factory somewhere else other than in China, could be Brazil, could be Vietnam, could be India as well. Yes, so Foxconn does actually have factories in a dozen, almost two dozen things around the world. They've got, Fox, they've got factories in America, even before the Wisconsin thing happened, but the debacle of Wisconsin, which still has scarred a lot of people. They've had factories, they've got factories in Mexico, Brazil, as you mentioned, Vietnam, many places. And I think what we will see is a decentralized model for electronics manufacturing, including iPhones where you will have much more regionalization. Maybe you might have iPhone assembly in Czech Republic or somewhere in Eastern Europe, in Mexico or Brazil, India, of course, Vietnam, other places. Not necessarily all of these places I mentioned, but some of these places. And there'll be different levels of production. It'll be somewhat less integrated. Some of the work will be, the earlier work will be done in one place. It'll be shipped off to the next place for the next step and so forth. So it might not be as integrated as what we see in Zhengzhou and of course in Shenzhen, but definitely I think that five to 10 years from now, we will see more countries on the list of assembly sites for, for iPhones and it will be much more fractured. We'll still have large factories. China will still be a very important part of it. I think India will become more and more important, but it will definitely be more fractured. Mm. And the cost of iPhones will definitely go as a result of that to the consumer. But how about the suppliers from Taiwan working with Apple? Because there's a lot of R&D specifically to screens, specifically to other components within the iPhone itself. Well, I think that this R&D will go on. I mean, the thing to remember is Apple does a lot of its own R&D, you know, even at the materials level. They're now designing their own chips, which we know, and it's been manufactured by TSMC. And... You know, they even dumped Intel a couple of years ago to do that. They're working on display technologies. Um, they have that little R&D factory in northern Taiwan, which I told the world about a few years ago, and Apple was not happy about it, but I stumbled across it. They're still working away on that little factory, which used to be owned by Qualcomm, is still in existence, still plugging away. It's not doing large-scale manufacturing. It's kind of more an R&D production lab. So we're going to see more coming out of that. They do R&D and materials R&D all around the world. Apple's work on development around the world is not well known, but it's not just all happening in Cupertino. And they do work very closely with suppliers. A lot of, if you look at their annual CapEx budget, Apple does spend a lot of money on CapEx. And people think, well, they don't manufacture anything. So what is this CapEx for? And they have traditionally bought equipment and, you know, it's got their name on it. They bought it, but put it in the factories of their suppliers. And that equipment can only be used for Apple manufacturing, can't be used for any other client. 
that is a process that's been on, going on for at least 20 years. I think it'll continue. It might kind of wind down a little bit or reduce a little bit. I think it'll ebb and flow. But the relationship with the Taiwan suppliers will continue. And I think it'll be more deeper into the supply chain, not just assembly. I think the materials and component manufacturing will, will deepen because as we get into things like AR goggles and all sorts of other things, that tight relationship will still be required. Other than just manufacturing cars, what other new developments for Foxconn? Which areas are they targeting for new areas of investment for them? I'm sure they are not limited to just vehicles and phones at this point. Right? No, they're not. If we talk about Foxconn broadly, there's quite a few companies within the Foxconn family, like FIT, Hong Kong, and so forth. They do service. A lot of people forget they do service. They do a lot of service, right? And that's a big business right now because of big data, because of streaming and now getting into AI and so forth. Servers are a huge area. So different parts within that server ecosystem, there's servers that just basically kind of take in and store data and then dish it out again. There's servers that do a lot of computing and processing. There is, of course, servers that shuffle data around like, you know, routers and they do all of that. And they also do 3G, 4G, and 5G radio communications equipment. Uh, they work with the big European names as an OEM, the big European names in telecommunications. They work in the open RAN ecosystem, which is a new kind of alternative protocol and ecosystem for telecommunications. We think of Foxconn, we think of Apple assembly, and that's, that makes sense. It's 50% of the revenue, but the other 50% is actually quite diversified. And as they reduce their reliance on Apple and move into EVs, we will see a lot more of this other stuff, servers, you know, games machines, and other electronics will be an important part of their business. I want to move away from Foxconn now and dive a little bit deeper into the other most important company probably now is TSMC. Before we dive deeper and also to refresh the audience, can you describe the semiconductor supply chain from the design that comes from the US, the key machine from ASML that is based in the Netherlands, and then there's the reference architecture from the memory chips and the NAND storage that comes from Samsung, and then the role that TSMC is also playing within this ecosystem itself? Yeah, it's a very complicated system. It's kind of like making a hamburger or McDonald's in a way. I don't think Morris Jung or Mark <laughs> would like me to describe it that way, but... You know, you get your beef patty and your bread and everything, and someone's got to put it together, but it's very difficult. There is a reason why TSMC is the leader and nobody else can do what they do. There's not many companies who can actually run an EUV machine. You know, as we know, some Chinese companies got their hands on one and didn't know what to do with it, right? So TSMC strength is not just that they're really good at what they do. They really are in such a position, they spend so much money on R&D, they work so closely with their suppliers, like ASML, LAM Research, and so many others, including the materials companies. Because when you think about it, semiconductors is really, in many ways, it's chemical engineering, right? You are getting a big wafer of chemical, which is silicon, and you're going through a process of making chemical reactions to, to paint a pattern on that silicon and more chemical reactions to etuate the stuff you don't need. And it's really a lot of chemical engineering. So the materials is very important. And they're always looking for new material because as we shrink down and follow Moore's law, some of the old materials don't work anymore. The chemical properties are not suitable. So they're looking for new material or new ways to play with and, and manipulate existing materials. 
So that's what they do. But in a way, that's at the end of what you pointed out is they're really important. They have their own instruction set architecture and the world follows it. So people base themselves around those designs, Qualcomm and NVIDIA and a lot of other companies license what they have. But there's also the electronic design companies. They sell software, very complicated software to help them design this stuff. And if you don't have access to this software, you're going to struggle to just get a design. And TSMC works with all of these companies. So what we're seeing, what I've noticed myself over the last few years, is there are more and more engineers in Taiwan, moving to Taiwan, living in Taiwan from Europe, from US, from Japan, who work for these vendors, coming to support and work alongside TSMC. So if you go into a TSMC factory, you won't find a lot of humans. They're actually mostly robots, very automated. But when you go there, in and around the factories, you'll see not just TSMC staff, but you will see staff from ASML or LAM Research, all the other companies that are vendors. So it's not a case of just you know, shipping a product to Shinju and leaving it there. They're, they're supporting it. And that support is really required to, to manufacture this stuff. Recently, I had Chris Miller, the author of Chip Wall, who just won the FT Book Prize for 2022 on the show. And one of the things that I really captured from him was that in order for the semiconductor supply chain to really work, it has to be as decentralized as how you just described it. And then the point is that based on that argument, no single country can do it alone. And the single country we know is China. There is this question that people will always ask me is like, what is the impact on the customer if this semiconductor supply chain falls apart? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's very true. I and mean, if you haven't bought Chris Miller's chip, well, you should go out and buy it. It's really amazing. <laughs> the first half of it was this, because I know a lot of the second, the back half, the more modern history, but the early stuff is just fascinating. He dug up some great anecdotes. I was just, I was enthralled by it. And he writes it in such a beautiful way that I think it's very acceptable. So definitely people can go out and buy chip. Oil. Yeah, it's true. There is, it's a supply chain. It's a cheat, right? So you're only as strong as your weakest link. So says the, you know, the cliche. And we've seen that over the last couple of years. You know, the reason why TSMC was not able to produce enough chips for autos was very complicated. It wasn't just, oh, they don't have enough capacity, which was part of the issue, but you need to get machines in, you need to get chemicals in, you know, and if one part of the process grinds to a halt, then that chip doesn't get assembled, doesn't get sent to China to be put into a device. And so it was this knock-on effect that we saw from the supply chain. And ASML, for example, who supply the famous, very expensive EUV machines, have said over the last few years that they have been impacted by, you know, logistics, getting product in and out of China, which they need for themselves, chemicals and even chips, because there's chips that go into machines that make chips, which is very meta, right? So you're right. You can't go it alone. And China's trying to go it alone. They kind of need to go it alone because the world is especially, you know, led by the US is forcing them to go it alone, but they can't. And any part of the supply chain that falls down is going to impact everybody else. And that's why I think China is going to struggle. It's not that China has, doesn't have very good engineers. It's not that China is hopeless. It's that you lack one part of the puzzle, the whole thing grinds to a halt. And China does not have every part of the puzzle, and they will never have every part of the puzzle. So they're going to have to find various fixes and workarounds, and they'll struggle through it. But I don't think China's going to be able to replace you know, Taiwan or the US or anyone like that. Mm. And then when 
there's also export control that's now placed on them. So there's also a lot of limits to what kind of chip technology they can get as well, right? That's correct. Yes. So, you know, the Biden administration is his policies, not that they're similar to Donald Trump's, right? I think a lot of people, myself included, thought that when Biden came in, he would be more dovish and a bit more chill and relaxed on China than Trump. But he's pretty much followed the same policies through. And that is to aggressively, slowly tighten the screws on China's ability to access his technology. And, you know, we've seen examples of that possibly proving to be the right move. Just recently in mid-February, we saw the annual report from ASML come out and in it, they did say, yes, we had a case of one of our people in China, in our operations in China, tried to steal some IP. That's a big problem, right? And unfortunately, you know, I think the Chinese, including the government itself, has not helped their case. The debacle over China where China was basically being run as a separate entity from the global company. And that was just, you know, a really messy situation revolving around stamps and chops and who owned them and stuff like that. That also, in many ways, heightened the sense of concern that the rest of the world has about operating in China and trusting that your IP is going to be safe in China. And these are isolated incidents and IP theft has does happen everywhere around the world. It's not just China, but when these things happen and people start to hear about them, you have you know, corporate executives and policymakers say, well, that proves our point. And that is a really difficult situation that China, the Chinese government has put themselves in by allowing this to happen. And if they do keep allowing this to happen, then it's going to get harder and harder for them to get their hands on chip technology. Given that the Russia's recent invasion into Ukraine, and of course, the there are worries that China might do the same in Taiwan, and even people giving predictions for the next five years. I'm not so keen about talking about geopolitical risks because neither of us are experts on the subject. But I want to focus a lot more on the Taiwanese tech giants. What will happen to both Foxconn and TSMC and the type of disruption that it will cause if, say, Taiwan falls under China's hands? Well, if China was to march into Taiwan and take over TSMC's factories, even if Mark Liu Chairman handed them the keys and said, go ahead, they couldn't run it. They couldn't do anything with it, right? You need really specialized knowledge. And it's not just one or two key engineers. Like, you know, they have thousands of engineers. A chip is, in the making of a chip is dozens of steps. You know, let's say two dozen steps. It's, you can break it down even some steps from there. Every step has an engineer in charge of that step. And all they do every day is focus on that one step, whether it's the etching or the lipo or whatever, all sorts of steps, the polishing. There's so many different parts to it. So you have just one engineer focused on that. Then you have another engineer who's focused on the overall process. And then you've got other engineers focused on, you know, just checking the chemicals and making sure they're all okay. And one of this is just secret recipes that only people within TSMC would know. So we talk about the importance of these factories. We talk about the importance of EV machines. We talk about, you know, 30 or $40 billion that TSMC spends every year. But honestly, Bernard, the most valuable resource that TSMC has is the people. And so if China was to invade 
and assuming they don't destroy the factories in the process, they still could not run TSMC. And that is something that people forget. And if TSMC ground to a halt, the world would grind to a halt. And that's not even an exaggeration. You just have to stop and think about all of the things that we have in the world that require a chip. You have to think about the fact that Moore's law works so quickly that devices get updated constantly. The iPhone has one of the slowest product cycles in the world. Desktop computers come out every few months. Servers come out every few months. Other smartphone manufacturers have a new product basically every quarter. And so things would grind or halt very quickly. On the Foxconn side, now Foxconn doesn't have as high a proportion of its manufacturing in Taiwan, but its management is in Taiwan, in Taipei. You know, the chairman, Liu Yangwei, is based in Taipei. His whole management team is based in Taipei, including the financial office. They do a lot of their R&D and other management work out of Taiwan. So if there's any kind of interruption to that, it would be very difficult for them to keep going on business as usual. And they're just the two biggest names. But then you go down the whole ecosystem of companies involved that are in Taiwan. It would be very difficult for the world to continue on as normal if that was to happen. And that's the scenario I think people need to remember. Mm. And then there wouldn't be a scenario of alternate manufacturing for semiconductors, given that TSMC has these gigafactories, which is also something that I think people do not appreciate that that disruption can be quite disruptive as well. You're right. Now, the US is trying very hard to get TSMC to you know, move to the US and they're throwing money out. They, you know, TSMC is going to Arizona. The CHIPS Act has passed. That'll throw a lot of money around. But that won't be enough. In the current announced plans, just purely what's been announced so far. You know, I read the numbers and I estimate that TSMC's uh, global capacity, only less than 5% would be in the US based on the current announced plans. Now, I expect those plans to expand and broaden. They seem to have enough land and possibility of up to four factories instead of two. They could even go to six, who knows? But even if they were to expand to the, you know, the maximum of what might be possible in Arizona, I think still we'd get maybe 7% global capacity of maybe up to 10%. And it won't be the leading edge. The leading edge will still be in Taiwan. And that's not just for kind of protection reasons. I think a lot of people think that, oh, the Taiwanese don't want to have the best in America because they're trying to hold on to themselves, which is kind of true. But it's also an issue of practicality. When you're making a leading edge chip, it's constant tinkering. You're constantly tinkering with the recipe. Are you constantly taking reams of notes? Like the amount of data that TSMC collates in the process of perfecting a new technology is staggering. It's staggering. They have data scientists in the company helping them work all that out. And that process is done in Taiwan. Right, That's where the R&D engineers work. That's where all the bits and pieces work. You can't up and move that to Arizona overnight. And one of the big advantages for TSMC, since they've spread their wings beyond Shinju, which is in the north of Taiwan, they've moved to Taichung, which is in central Taiwan. 
and Tainan in southern Taiwan, and they've also got Kaohsiung nearby on the way. You could do something in the morning in Shinju, hop on the high-speed rail and get to Kaohsiung in a couple of hours, and then pop back up to you know Taichung later in the afternoon. So everything is very close to each other. And that integration is very powerful and very important. And so I think it'll be very difficult. Even if TSMC wanted to, I think it'd be very difficult to have the absolute leading edge operating out of Arizona. They just don't see that happening in the next 10 years. Mm. But what about China itself? Are there any key players in the semiconductor industry within China? And how far are they in catching up with TSMC out there? The only company I kind of had a big market share is YMTC. But I think recently, even Apple have stopped working with them as well. Yeah, YMTC popped up. There was HCMC as well. You know, it's a bit of a Potemkin village there going on. I think that what we really saw in some of the semiconductor players was more of a Theranos kind of, you know, we've got all this and we can do it, but really they couldn't. They were faking it. To this Until day, they make it. <laughs> exactly, but they couldn't, right? They couldn't fake it till they make it. It's not that simple, but you're right. They, they, I think they thought they could fake it till they make it until they could actually work it out, but that doesn't seem to be playing out. SMIC has been around 20 years now. They're still a legit player in the industry. They are, in terms of technology, a long way behind TSMC. They are never going to catch up because by the time they can do what TSMC does, TSMC will have already sprinted down the road another two miles. And that's always the way. That's the thing about semiconductors and Moore's law is you can work your your guts out to to catch up to a certain technology node and you can get there and you can go, wow, we did it. We finally cracked, you know, 45 nan or, you know, even 10. But guess what? Everybody else is already, you know, two, three nodes ahead of you. And so that's really the problem. And the other problem is that to get to the next node, you have to master the first node. They build on each other. So a lot of the stuff that you're doing in say seven is stuff you learned by doing 10. And a lot of that was, you know, learned from a previous node. And that is one of the really big challenges. Now, what the Chinese are trying to do is they're very much going for a moonshot. They're working on absolutely new technologies, new chemical processes and new technologies and hoping that they can just leapfrog into an advanced node without going through all the steps first. I don't know whether that works, but I think it's exactly the right strategy. Because if you're just going to keep trying to play catch up and learn the node and always it's just kind of be a fast follow-up. You're never going to catch up. So instead, there's a lot of energy and time going into skipping all of that, starting almost starting from scratch, just rethinking semiconductor manufacturing through new processes and chemical technologies. And then if they do nail it, then they'll suddenly they'll pop up ahead of everybody else. I don't know whether they can whether it can work. I think it's kind of it's one of those things where maybe there's a 10% chance of it happening. But if they can land that 10%, then there's, you know, a 2,000% upside to actually managing it. So it's definitely worth a go. And I think that's exactly the right strategy. But I, again, I don't know if it'll work. We'll see. We'll find out in the next few years. Mm. I, and I could think of some disruptive technology, for example, quantum computing, although it's still in a very frontier stage as well. And that will take a lot more time to think about as well. So meanwhile... How are the companies such as Huawei currently sourcing their semiconductor chips, given that the supply is already cut from them at, in a pretty yeah. large way? 
Yeah, Huawei has really has really struggled. We've seen that over the last couple of years with the you know the annual financial reports and so forth. They're, they're a smart company. They're very resourceful. They've got great engineering. You know, we can't ignore the fact that they did, and this is you know this is not how like this has been shown in court filings and a lot of evidence that they did steal technology from the West historically over the last twenty years. But we shouldn't dismiss that and say, oh, all they've done is just steal technologies. They do have very good engineers. They have a very large engineering team. And so a lot of the technologies they've built over the years have really, truly been sourced and developed by themselves. Unfortunately, their reputation is tied by the fact that they've borrowed liberal from other companies. But in semiconductors, they're a little bit stuck. They do semiconductor design and they can't really have those made by the Taiwanese anymore. So they're rushing around trying to find alternatives. And so far they're going okay. One thing about the technology industry in electronics is you don't actually need to have the most leading edge technology. You can get by on something that is two, three, four nodes behind, but you've got to rethink the way you develop that system. And so instead of having one leading edge chip manufactured at say seven nanometers, you might build a computer that has four chips that, you know, an older 10 nanometer or something else. Now it's not going to work in the same way. It's not going to be as efficient. For example, at the computer science level, you'll have to really lean heavily on multi-threading and stuff like that. So you have to really rethink your process. You have to build a system around the chips that you can get, not the chips that you want. And I think that rethinking is been underway in Huawei for the last few years. They've been seeing the writing on the wall, they knew what was going to come down the pike from Washington and they have really been working on it. And so I wouldn't discount Huawei. I think they'll find ways to get around the restrictions on them. They're definitely still going to struggle. They're not going to be as strong as they would have been otherwise. But the thing to remember is Huawei doesn't have global competitors in the same way they used to because of the tech cold war, Chinese companies are not really competing against non-Chinese companies because both Beijing and Washington have ensured that they can't really mix. Hmm. Reminds me of a Donald Rumsfeld quote, you go to war with the army you have, not the army you want to have. Exactly. Exactly. And that's Huawei. That's exactly Huawei's situation right now. Hmm. Given the recent CHIPS acts and efforts from the US and European governments, to get TSMC to set up in their own respective countries. I, the question I think you alluded earlier to is the expertise can never be so easily transferred, but can there be a scenario where some of these expertise can be exported and to diversify that risk or it's just too late? We have no choice. Everything is on the island of Taiwan and there's going to be no way that this capability is going to go out unless all the other countries start to invest in their own R&D in semiconductors or taking the Chinese approach and find the next leap forward rather than doing the chasing up situation? I don't think it's binary. I don't think it's like everything's in Taiwan or nothing's in Taiwan or the US can do it all. Back to what you said before, and as Chris Miller has pointed out, it's a team game. You need every player on the team. And so, yes, we will see more being done in the US by TSMC and others. We'll see more being done in Japan. The Japan joint venture with Sony and others uh, done by TSMC over the next few years is fascinating because there will be 
pretty tight alignment over product development. And that is a model that I'd really look very closely at now. Once that gets running very closely, how that works and how it operates. And so this cooperation needs to go on. And yes, less of it will happen in Shinju and more of it might happen in Phoenix or in Dresden or in Japan. And so that still doesn't mean that you can do without Taiwan though. You still will need Taiwan as part of the process. And so that's part of the struggle is yes, you can move some of it, the R and D and the manufacturing processes and parts of the puzzle to another geography, but that doesn't mean you still absolutely need to have Taiwan in the mix. And so that's really the tricky thing about it. So it comes to this last thing I wanted to ask you, Warren Buffett has recently retreated from TSMC and I saw your tweet yesterday. How much money has he left on the table and what are the potential reasons on why he pulled out his entire position from TSMC? Well, I did the numbers and he left about a billion dollars on the table. And I'll explain how I get that calculation. So we know this information because funds need to basically report every quarter their holdings as of the end of that quarter. So the end of September, the end of December and so forth. At the end of September, they reported owning uh, about 60 million ADRs, American Depository Receipts of TSMC. And then at the end of December, and that report came out mid-February, but for the end of December, that holding had dropped to around you know, 8 million. So they sold off about 50, 51 million ADRs. And so if you were to look at what those stakes were worth at those balance sheet dates, September and December, and then look at what it was worth in the middle of February. They did definitely leave a lot of upside on the table because between December 31st and mid-February 2023, TSMC shares climbed about almost 30%, just less than 30%. And so that was money that they didn't get. Now, admittedly, it's quite possible that on January 2nd, Berkshire Hathaway went back into the market and bought up a whole lot more TSMC shares again. We don't know. We will find out at the end of sometime, I guess, in April or May. And the other thing to remember is because it's just a snapshot in time, we don't know what trading happened within the quarter. So we don't know when they bought and sold. We don't know what price they bought and sold. It is very possible that they went ahead and bought you know, another 20 million shares on, you know, the 2nd of January and then sold them a week later. Now that's not the Buffett style, to be honest. They don't really buy and sell that quickly. But the other thing I want to point out here is that, you know, Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, including Charlie Munger, are famous for this buy and hold strategy. But if you actually run the numbers and which public information, because they do have to file their holdings, they do on average sell any purchase within a year of buying. Right. And there is statistical analysis being done by academics out there. Somewhere around 50 to 60% of their holdings are sold within four quarters. So back to the question about why. Well, the climate of the fourth quarter of last year was not altogether clear. Interest rates were rising. The economic outlook was murky. We didn't know what was going to happen. We may be heading for a global recession. We may not. There's debate about that. And Semiconductors very much tied the macroeconomic cycle. When business goes up, when the economy goes up, chips do very well and in reverse. So if you're sitting in 
Omaha, Nebraska, which is where Berkshire is, and you're looking at all these warning signs and you're holding $5 billion of semiconductor stocks, and you know that chips tend to not do well in a down cycle, it would be a pretty rational move to say, well, maybe we shouldn't be holding chips. And so sometime during the quarter, they sold 86% of their shares. Interestingly enough, they held their Apple position. They own, as of mid-February, around $137 billion of Apple shares. It's, we believe, their largest single investment. In fact, they increased it slightly by a couple of hundred thousand shares. So clearly, they believe in Apple. But at that point in time, they didn't quite believe in ESMC. And I can understand why. They left a lot of money on the table, but it's very easy to criticize in hindsight and say, well, that was stupid. You shouldn't have bought or sold. They made what they thought was a rational decision at the time. But since then, new information has come out and TSMC is looking pretty solid. And not likely that they also consider the geopolitical risks as well, or even thinking about whether semiconductors are going to still be in demand with all the raise in prices and the supply chain crunch is starting to ease because China just started opening up with their COVID zero as well. Yeah, possibly. I mean, there's two ways that can be thought of. We had, you know, the elephant in the room, of course, is the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, came to Taiwan in the summer of 2022. China followed up with war games and exercises to show the displeasure, and that was the biggest exercise in, in 25 years. And the world was right to be concerned. I, ironically, people outside of Taiwan were less concerned than people inside Taiwan, and the, the narrative is that you know, Taiwanese are blind and they don't care and they don't take it seriously. It's just that Taiwan's been facing this for 40, 50 years, so they tend to be a bit more chill about it. But if you're sitting in the US or somewhere else, that would rightly scare you. An unstable situation is not good for anyone. But then you go back to the COVID, post-COVID era. The other thing that was happening in that quarter was China basically dropping COVID zero and letting things fly. And then, you know, COVID was breaking out. We saw what happened at Foxconn's factories. That impacted Apple's ability to sell more phones. And if Apple can't, you know, ship phones, then maybe you don't need to buy as many chips from TSMC. And so you have that knock-on effect. And that was one of the other things that we're looking at in the fourth quarter that would make someone who is an investor and spending billions of dollars on shares go, maybe there's the risk and return doesn't work out for me. The risk is a bit higher than the possible return is a bit low in my thinking. So I'm going to kind of go elsewhere. And that, I think that's probably what they were looking at. I think this is a very succinct way of thinking about this. And of course, we live in interesting times, Tim. So thank you for coming on the show. And in closing, I want to ask my two favorite questions to you. Any recommendations that have inspired you recently? Well, I've already said chip war, so go out and buy chip war. <laughs> I read it. I will let you in on secret. You get an advanced copy. I was very lucky. Chris shared a copy of it, and he's been a very good interlocutor with people. I know he came on your podcast, so he's really been very giving of his time. He does actually have a full-time job as a professor, so you know he's very busy. But that's it is a great book, and I would encourage anyone who's got a remote interest to go out buy the book. I'm hearing that a Mandarin version will be coming out, so Chinese is your preferred language. Keep an eye out for that. There's probably going to be other languages out there. It hit the New York Times bestseller. List. The other thing that I'm doing right now, actually, I'm deep diving into into the AI space as we speak now. Generative AI is fascinating. I've actually been developing my own AI bots and stuff. I recently completed a master's degree in computer science. So I'm spending a lot of time 
diving in and building some of this myself. Nothing to release to the public at this stage, but it's a fascinating area working with neural networks. So um, I would encourage anyone who follows your podcast or, you know, who's interested in tech, you don't have to go out and you know, learn Python and develop, you know, large language models, but I would definitely recommend you go out and read what's going on, not just in the news media, but in the academic literature, because it's, there's some fascinating stuff going on. And I think it's going to shape technology over the next few years. Congratulations on the, the master's degree, because I remember when we met, you were talking about working on that. And I think I would just recommend a book since everyone is on this AI track. I recently read a book called Rebooting AI. I would probably put the author on my show notes, but it is a very good book. And one of the things I think a lot of people get too much into the hype is to forget that there are actually many development areas within the AI space. I think currently the prevailing paradigm is deep learning, but deep learning doesn't solve everything. There are other paradigms there. And that book gives me a very good way of trying to decouple myself away from the hype and think about what are the things you can build on top of that. That's a very good tip. You're right. There is many facets of AI. And so you're right. People should get beyond that, just deep learning and go into other areas because it is very broad and fascinating. And my last question then, how can my audience find you? I am still on Twitter at T Culpin for as long as Twitter keeps running. I am also on Mastodon and Post News at T Culpin. I've recently decided to embrace Instagram and I'm struggling with that. So if you do, if you're on Instagram, you listen, just come and find me on at T Culpin and tell me what I'm doing wrong on Insta because it's uh, maybe I'm just too old. And I'm spending more time on LinkedIn these days. You can find me on LinkedIn, Tim Culpin. I think some of my more interesting discussions are probably going to be on LinkedIn in the future. And definitely you should subscribe to us on our YouTube channel, but this podcast will be most likely in the best podcast platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. And last but not least, also subscribe to our newsletter where we can give you the summary highlights of the conversations that we're having every month. Tim, many thanks for coming on the show and I look forward to speak to you again in a different time. Thank you, Brandon. Have a great day.